Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Allison Pinches, and I'm one of the pastoral staff here at Courtright. It is good to be together, and I am excited to dig into this chapter of Ruth. We are finishing a four-week series in the book of Ruth, which is one of the books in the Old Testament or the first half of the Bible, and it's an amazing story. So I'm looking forward to digging in with you this morning. Would you join with me in prayer as we begin? God, we thank you that you helped this story to be remembered and told on through many generations. And God, we pray that you would help us to understand the truth that you have for us in this story. And more than understanding, would you help us to live into the life that you offer us in this story? For we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I love stories. We have home videos of me as a little girl making up all kinds of stories, usually involving Paddington Bear. And most nights I would ask my dad, tell me a story from when you were a little boy. And some of you know that in my other job, I work on a CBC radio show and podcast as well as another podcast. And my job literally is to find good stories and to help shape them into how we'll tell them. I think my love of storytelling is what draws me so strongly to the Book of Ruth. It really is such a great story. I mean, it has a bit of everything. Rags to riches, famine, desperation, despair, scheming, seduction, a secret plan under the cover of darkness, shrewd business dealings, unlikely heroes, a happy ending, and someone even loses a shoe. It's not a good story unless someone hobbles away with one barefoot. With the final chapter today, we're going to recap the story thus far, but I encourage you to read it through on your own. And as we dive in today, I hope that you will be captivated by this extraordinary, ordinary story. So, our story begins and ends in Bethlehem, a town known as Jerusalem's breadbasket for all the grain that it provides to its neighboring city. But unfortunately, the basket is empty, and famine has decimated the land. At their wit's end, one family decides to do the unthinkable and move to the enemy territory of Moab in search of food. The dad's name was Elimelech, which means my God is king, and his wife, Naomi, which means pleasantness, and their two sons, Malon, or sickness, and Chilion, the end of the line. Yeah, gives you a hint about the kind of times they were living in and their state of mind when their sons were born. Those names have not made the top of a lot of baby name lists. So this family moves to Moab, and the sons marry two Moabite women. This, by the way, had been forbidden, as the Moabites were enemies of Israel and worshipped other gods. And after some time in Moab, tragically, the dad, Elimelech, dies. And not long after, so do both the sons, Malon and Chilion, leaving Naomi alone. After 10 years in Moab, Naomi hears that there might be bread once again in Bethlehem. And with nothing left for her in Moab, she turns back toward home, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi stops on the way back, realizing she has nothing to offer them, and implores them to go back to their mother's homes and perhaps start a new life with a husband. They resist this suggestion, but ultimately Orpah realizes the sense of it and turns back home. Ruth grabs onto Naomi and says in the strongest way, I'm not leaving you, not even when we're dead. I'm going to be buried next to you. And incredibly, she says, your people, my people. Your God, my God. So they press on. 
And when they arrive back to Bethlehem, the people hardly even recognize her. Is this Naomi? And quickly, Naomi says, don't call me pleasantness or Naomi. Call me bitter, Mara. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. You can't call me pleasant when God has brought so much disaster on me. Yeah, so she sounds super fun to be around. Can't you totally see why Ruth went with her? <laughs> so they arrive at the harvest time, and there's this law in Israel that farmers couldn't harvest all the grain from their field. They had to leave some around the edges so that those in need, foreigners, widows, orphans, could collect it. It was a step up of sorts from dumpster diving, as it was a communal way to provide for those with least. So realizing that they're going to need to eat, Ruth goes out to collect some grain. She happens to start working at the field of a man named Boaz. And Boaz asks about her, and when his servants tell her that this is the daughter-in-law who came back with Naomi, Boaz has heard of her and was impressed with this loyalty. So he makes sure she is protected and makes sure that she's not bothered or harassed by the other workers. And he also gives her extra food, grain, and attention. Needless to say, Ruth is super grateful. And when she goes home with all this extra food, she tells Naomi about this great older guy she met who let her work and made sure she was safe and given extra food. And Naomi is thrilled because she knows Boaz. He's actually part of her husband's extended family. So Ruth keeps working in Boaz's fields during the harvest. And when the harvest is over, Naomi hatches a plan. She tells Ruth to get all dressed up and go to the threshing floor to propose to Boaz. When the harvest finished, the men would all sleep on the threshing floor by the grain to protect it. And so, under the cover of darkness, Ruth sneaks in and finds Boaz and lies down next to him. When he startles awake in the night, he is shocked to find a woman there. But Ruth explains why she is there, and Boaz is delighted. But just before what seems like a happy ending emerging, because this is a good story, there's a twist. Boaz is a relative, but there's actually a closer relative who needs to be asked first. So Boaz can only marry Ruth if this other guy says no. So Boaz promises to go to the city gate where people gathered and conducted matters of business first thing in the morning to try to settle the matter. And that cliffhanger is where we left our story last week and pick it up today. So if you have a Bible or want to pull out your phone, I encourage you to do so. Ruth chapter 4 is where we're beginning. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there than the next of kin who Boaz had spoken came passing by. So Boaz said, come over, friends, sit down here. And when he went over and sat down, and then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the next of kin, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our kinsman Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me so that I may know, for there is no one prior to you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this, the next of kin said, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. 
Take my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Okay, we're going to pause here before we continue. So you might be wondering, wait a second, what's all this talk about land? I thought he wanted to marry Ruth. Boaz is being very shrewd here in how he presents the deal to this closer relative, this redeemer. A quick side note before we get into that. So there are obviously a lot of concerns with a patriarchal society and the lack of rights available to women. And just want to be clear that men arguing about who gets Ruth like she's property does not fully honor her as a person made in the image of God. At the same time, it's interesting to note that this ancient society was a collectivist society, and there were structures in place to consider the needs of others and take care of the vulnerable. So to be clear, totally not okay to treat someone like property. Also at work here is a society with structures in place to try to make sure people are provided for and protected. Okay, back to Boaz, the shrewd negotiator. He's actually combining two laws and doing a bit of a sneak attack. So one law is a provision to help land stay in the family and also prevent a socioeconomic disparity from growing too large between people. Boaz actually presents this land deal first. And most important to know about how ancient Israel viewed land was that Yahweh, God, was the divine landowner and Israel were just tenants. There was actually no sense that you could own land. That was unfathomable. In some ways, it's similar to how indigenous people view land. It's not something to be owned. In the laws for ancient Israel society, Leviticus says explicitly, the land may not be sold permanently because the land is mine, God's. With me, you are but aliens and tenants. And it continues, through the land that you hold, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If any one of your kin falls into difficulty and sells a piece of property, then the next of kin shall come and redeem what the relative has sold. So the land was ultimately owned by God, and groups of families could own the right to use the land to live, to maintain, for farming, growing grapes, etc. And then if someone falls on hard times and has to sell their right to use the land, then another one of their relatives or redeemers can buy it back on their behalf so that it stays in the family. So Boaz is offering this relative what seems like a pretty good deal to redeem the land. And initially, he jumps at the offer. Then, for the sneak attack, Boaz drops the Moabite bomb. Here's where Boaz brings in another law. This one is called the Leverite Law. And basically, it says that if one brother dies without any children, the next brother was supposed to marry his brother's widow. And if they have kids, their first son would actually carry on the dead brother's name and lineage. Daniel Block writes this. This case arose from Israel's distinctive theology of land, which is a gift from God and must remain within the clan, and family, which must remain intact to ensure the ongoing life of the ancestors. In ancient Israel, there was not extensive teaching on the afterlife in the Hebrew Bible. So there was not a strong idea about what happened after you died. The way that you lived on was through your children and ancestors. So it was crucial to have descendants in order for your name to be carried on. What's interesting is that the law was technically referring to actual brothers, but the spirit of the law could be extended to other family members. 
So what's important to note here is that Boaz is actually giving a very generous interpretation of this law. He's basically saying this is the right thing to do, but he is not required by law to do this. He's acting nobly to interpret the law in this way. And he seems to have some clout and authority in the village, given everyone's compliance with his instructions so far. So when he says this is how we should interpret and apply the rule, no one questions his generous interpretation of the law. But remember, Moabites were detested enemies, and a widow had already been someone else's wife. So when Boaz brings Ruth, the Moabite widow, into the picture, the guy backs right off. What likely would have happened is if Ruth had married this guy and had children, then those children would have had rights to both Elimelech's land and the land that belonged to this guy. And he didn't want to dilute his estate in this way or maybe take land away from kids he already had. So for a variety of potential reasons, all centered around his best interest, he says, no way, I'm out. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the next of kin said to Boaz, acquire it for yourself, he took off his sandal. I told you someone was going to hobble away with one shoe in this story. I know, kind of strange. It was their way kind of of like shaking on the deal or signing a contract. And then if anyone questioned it later, Boaz could say, look, it's true. I have his sandal to prove it. Plus, he had other witnesses. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malon, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name and on his inheritance, in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate, along with the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. We never hear about that other redeemer again. Names are super important in the book of Ruth. And just as important is the fact that this guy doesn't get named. And essentially, he fades from history. This forgotten redeemer has acted out of self-interest rather than looking out for the well-being of those in need. And let's be clear, Ruth and Naomi are in need. The prospects for two widows who can't own land are not very good. He's called the redeemer throughout the passage, but he doesn't live into his redeemer. And so he loses even the name he already had. So we forget about the Redeemer, but it's in this section of text that we start to wonder if maybe something bigger is going on than we had previously thought. Up till now, this has been a story about a family that went through a really hard time, and now it looks like they're going to make it through, a story of survival in hard circumstances. But this is not a survival story. This is not simply about getting food or a roof over their head. That would have been worthwhile enough for a story. 
But in these lines and the next to come, the story explodes with redemption. And we realize the significance of this ordinary story is about to get extraordinary. The community blesses Honorable Boaz and Honorable Ruth in their marriage. And they say, may they be like Rachel and Leah. Now, Rachel and Leah were married to Jacob, and between them had 12 sons and one daughter. And Jacob was also known as Israel, as in the father of Israel. So these are like the founding mothers of their nation. And they are saying, let Ruth the Moabite be like them. It's hard for them to find a more honorable comparison. But then they also say, may their house be like Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. This, on the other hand, is a tragic story with dishonor and violation. But this blessing points to the fact that even something as horrendous and painful as Tamar and Judah's story can be part of the redemption story. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the first time that the word love has been used in the whole book of Ruth. Did you catch it? This is a love story. But it's not that kind of love story. This is not primarily about romance. The main story here is not about the love between Boaz and Ruth. The love story here is the love between a mother and daughter-in-law. It's kind of like Frozen. The central relationship in the movie Frozen is the relationship between the two sisters, Elsa and Anna. Secondary to this relationship is Anna's romance with Kristoff. But this relationship always takes a backstage to the prominence of the relationship between the sisters. And it's the sisters' love for each other that ends up saving the day. In a similar way, the backdrop for this whole story is the relationship between Ruth and Naomi. That is the central love story. And the romantic story between Ruth and Boaz is secondary. The women in the community direct our attention to this. They say to Naomi, your daughter-in-law who loves you is better than seven sons. Ruth, the Moabite wife of her dead son, better than seven sons? Seven sons was seen at that time as the ideal family. And they are saying this one foreign daughter-in-law is better than seven sons? This points to a new kind of family. Different from Israelite to Israelite with seven sons, it includes and honors foreigners. And a family might consist of, say, a mother-in-law, an outsider daughter, and an older-than-average groom. This can be a new blessed family. This new blessed family could include anyone with this loyal, for the good of the other, covering the gaps love. 
God is working with the faithful decisions of ordinary people to do something extraordinary. Marian Taylor writes in her new commentary on Ruth, God uses ordinary people who make extraordinary decisions and live extraordinary lives of hesed to bring forth his greater purposes. As we already said, this is not a survival story. And it's not even primarily a love story. It is a redemption story. Because something bigger and bigger is happening here. Naomi and Ruth, Ruth would have been happy to have a roof over their heads and food to eat, but they get so much more. In chapter 1, Naomi said, let's go see if we can find some bread in Bethlehem. And look what they get beyond bread. They have food, yes, but also security, relationships, a child, a way to preserve the family line, preservation of the family land, and they are restored to their community. Ruth gets to be included. Ruth, who said in chapter one, your people, my people. And here, we are seeing Naomi's people say Ruth is our people. Everything that was lost in chapter one is restored in chapter four and then some. Naomi, who came back to Bethlehem empty, is full and overflowing. Arms that once ached with loss, now filled with a child to love, and her broken heart beats whole. As the Bible Project explains, Naomi's tragedy leads her to believe God is punishing her, but the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. I started off by saying this is a great story, but there is no way Naomi thought this was a good story in chapter one. Horrific, devastating, unbearable, desperate, but not good. As many of you know, we've been on a difficult journey trying to grow our family over the past six years, and it's still hard. I was working through some of the grief with my counselor, and she said, you need to tell this story, meaning about our struggles and lack of answers. And I responded, but that's not a good story. Who wants to hear that story? No one wants to hear, I had a miscarriage, and then we couldn't have more kids. That's not a good story. But she and others have held out hope for me that it is a good story, and it's a story to be told. Because as my counselor said, she spends most of her time with people in this place, in the unfinished, unresolved, uncertain. That's a lot of life. As I was pondering this, a thought came to my mind one day. If I were to give my story a title, it would be, This is not a good story. And the subtitle would be, And Daring to Believe That's Not True. And if my title and subtitle are like a teeter-totter, this is not a good story, and daring to believe that's not true, I'll be honest, for years now, it's been heavy on the this is not a good story, and very sparse on the daring to believe that's not true. I think that's really why I love this story so much. And I know I haven't been through anything like what Naomi has, but we don't help ourselves when we measure or compare our grief. When Naomi says, call me Mara, bitter, I go, yes, I get that. This fall, by God's grace, 
the teeter-totter has finally shifted. And I find myself living much more on the daring to believe that's not true and much lighter on the this is not a good story. And like Naomi, it has taken a village and God's abundant grace to help me see the truth. My story is a good story. That's still hard to say. (laughs) And it's hard to say because I don't have the typical happy ending. We are still a family of three, and it doesn't look like that will change. And though it took me years to accept our family as Jordan, me, and Zoe, in these last months, I can finally celebrate it and say, this is good. It's really good. It's hard, and it's still good. And Ruth is a good story, not because it ends with a baby or with a marriage, though it does have those things. It's a good story because it is the story of God working out his purposes in the world, bringing about flourishing and life for his people, restoring the lost, and filling the empty. This story and stories like it serve as a type in the Old Testament. That means they have significance in and of themselves. They are part of God working out his purposes in the world, which is incredible but they also point to an ultimate reality beyond themselves. And we are meant to look at this story and also to look beyond it, to see the bigger reality to which it points. Ruth is a redemption story, not because Ruth and Naomi get what they want, but because God is unfolding a bigger story of redemption within this story. The failed redeemer, the no-name guy, reminds us of the things that we might look to that fail to redeem us, that fall short. We might look to marriage, or a relationship, or a baby, or a job, or getting to that next level of success. And when we look to these, we get disappointed and let down again and again, because they can't actually save us. They can't fix what's broken or make us whole. This story reminds us that there is a redeemer who truly redeems, who does far more than we can ask or imagine. It's not Naomi or Boaz or Ruth, virtuous as they may be. This redemption story points to another redemption story, the ultimate redemption story. So when we read the rest of the Old Testament, we keep asking, is this the ultimate redeemer? Is this the ultimate redeemer? Verse 18 Now these are the descendants of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, Ram of Aminadab, Aminadab of Nashon, Nashon of Salmon, Salmon of Boaz, Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse, and Jesse of David. Is it Boaz or Ruth or Naomi? Not yet. Is Obed the ultimate redeemer? Not yet. Jesse? Not yet. Famous King David? Not yet. To get the rest of the story, we have to skip ahead about a thousand years after David to the beginning of Matthew's gospel. He starts with a list of descendants and goes all the way back to Abraham. You'll see in this genealogy on the slide some familiar names here. Judah, Tamar, Perez, Boaz, whose mom was Rahab, another incredible foreign woman, and then Obed and Ruth. Ruth makes it into the most important lens. That's amazing, especially at a time where women were not usually included in a list like that. 
But as we keep hearing this whole list of names, we keep asking, is this the one? Is this the ultimate redeemer? Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Ruth points to the full redemption story of Jesus, and it is also part of that story unfolding. This is the ultimate Advent text as it paves the way for the Christmas story, which is the redemption story of Jesus. And the redemption story of Jesus is that he came to make all things right, to take all the brokenness, pain, hurt that you have suffered, and give you something new in exchange. He wipes the slate clean of all you wished you had or had not done and brings abundant life. Not to give us the things we want, but to give us a depth of life, a peace, a purpose, a relationship like we never imagined. Ruth, who was considered an outsider at the beginning of the story, gets to play an integral role. She gets to be part of the line, the descendants of Jesus. And so like Ruth, the good news of Jesus is that nobody gets left out. Nobody is overlooked or forgotten. Nothing too unredeemable. Romans 8 says, He works all things for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. How do you see your story? Where are you looking for redemption? Is there something you find yourself looking to? Okay, when that happens, it's going to be okay. How's that working for you? Whether we know it or not, we all need a redeemer. Someone to take our not good stories and make them good. Good does not mean easy or even happy all the time. Good is richer, fuller, and more whole. Even Jesus promised good is not easy. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And if we skip ahead to the very end of the story, to the last book of the Bible, Revelation says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That is the hope we have. We say, okay, God, take this, make me whole, take my empty and make it full. Let's pray. Father God, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do that good work in us. I pray that you would help us surrender, uh, maybe even for the first time, the stories that don't feel good in our life. And would you help us to look to you? And would you show us, would you make yourself real to us and do the amazing work of taking our not good stories and making them good, of taking our emptiness and making us full? For we ask this in your name. Amen.